Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gifts as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So, the apostles and brethren hear what's happened. When Peter comes to Jerusalem, they take issue with him. You know, as I said, they don't hesitate to question even Peter. And this is a landmark event. This is something that hadn't happened before, and they want to know about this. I think they're ready to rebuke Peter. He did something that you shouldn't do. He went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. These were not proselytes. These men hadn't been circumcised. So, what does Peter do with this? Well, what would we have done? Can you imagine some some people saying, I beg your pardon, I'm the Apostle Peter. You don't question what I do. You know, are you are you calling to into question my authority and my position in this church? You can imagine some people responding that way. Or just in general becoming defensive and and maybe lashing out, who are you? I remember when you did something, you know, or whatever. Peter doesn't do that at all. What does Peter do? He explains. Exactly. How does he explain? In order. In order, and what does he explain? Yeah? What does he explain? What happened? What happened? Exactly. A simple presentation of the facts of what happened. 
The proof of Christianity always lies in the facts. Just present what happened. That's his best defense. He really doesn't try to talk them into anything. He just tells them what happened. A very straightforward account. Now, you know, he starts with what event? <laughs> yeah, this sheet vision he had. He tells about that, you know, all the various beasts and so forth, and the voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And they would have been proud of him. <laughs> His scruples were strong. You know, he said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. You know, so they would have identified with him. Uh, it took some persuading for him to uh, understand that what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And uh, he mentions the triple repetition of that. And, uh, and really, he tells this in the order of his experiencing it. So then, the next thing that happens, the men appear at his house, the Spirit told him to go with them, with the, those men. And when he got to Cornelius' house, then, uh, you know, well, actually, uh, yeah, he, he reported to us in verse 13 how he had seen the angel. Now, really, Cornelius had seen the angel before Peter ever had the sheet vision. But Peter knows about that from Cornelius when he gets to Cornelius' house. So he's basically telling it in order as he learned these things. He's telling the story from his perspective. And uh, and, and so he tells what, what Cornelius said, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Now, there's, there's a number of things we'll want to say about this, but one point that I think is interesting is this. When Peter tells these happenings, does he cause the people he's telling this to to actually see the sheet or to hear Cornelius and his family speak in tongues? No. The miracles are not repeated. How do the people he's talking to know that they happened? Peter told them. Peter told them. And in the case of the Holy Spirit falling, you've got six men there to corroborate it, who are witnesses. Two different groups of people had access to the truth, but they didn't learn it the same way. You know, the six witnesses who went with Peter, they saw the Holy Spirit. Uh, the manifestation of it with Cornelius and his family, these people they're telling it to hear the witnesses, and that's how they come to know it. We're more like these people in Jerusalem than we are the six men. We know it not because we saw it and heard it. We know it because they testified. Their eyewitness testimony gives us proof and confirmation. He expects these people to accept that testimony. God is consistent in this. He doesn't keep repeating the miracles. Once the miracles have been done, the testimony is adequate to establish it. So, every Gentile is converted? Not a single one of them, as far as we know, ever again had this manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon them uh, before they were even converted to show that they ought to be saved. 
we go from what God did that one time and we hear the testimony and we understand that that means that Gentiles should be converted. Comments and thoughts about that idea. So, he says, you know, I was beginning to speak and the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. What does he mean by that? Just as he did upon us at the beginning. Going back to Acts 2? Exactly. And evidently there's some special similarity between this event and Acts 2. And I remember the word of the Lord. This brought to his mind that Jesus used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that I could stand in God's way? Peter's defense is based upon what God did. You know, God did this. You know, God gave them the same gift. How could I stand in God's way? If God didn't make any distinction between Jew and Gentile, how could Peter? That's a pretty powerful presentation, don't you think? Although it's really nothing more than a recounting of the facts in the case and the deduction that Peter makes. But it works. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. They are convinced by the same facts that convinced Peter. They show a commendable willingness to believe once the truth is shown to them. And so they, well, okay. <laughs> once, you, once you tell us all this, God's granted repentance to life to the Gentiles also. Comments and questions? They're living by faith just like we are. I mean, I know exactly. I know it was just a little bit right afterwards, but you know, just as they were being told, I mean, that's exactly what we're doing right now by studying scripture. Exactly. Well, if they had all of the of the Holy Spirit coming and uh, all of that, and Peter hadn't taught them, they still wouldn't have known. He he says that Peter right. would come and speak right. words to you by which you will be saved. They, they had to be taught in order to be saved. Good point. You can make some good points off of what did not save Cornelius. He was not saved by the Holy Spirit coming on him. He was not saved by his good moral conduct, which was exemplary. You know, what was he saved by? He was saved by responding to the words Peter taught him. He was saved by baptism, by faith, here in 11.18, by repentance leading to life. That's new information in 14 that we didn't get in the initial... You are right. Uh, in, in, back in uh, verse 5 and 6. So, again, sometimes it's, it's easy to maybe get hung up on the fact that a certain passage doesn't tell me, you know, X, Y, and Z. It only mentions X. Well, why not Y and Z? And, you know, we don't have everything recorded that was ever said. It's not necessarily fair to say that other things weren't mentioned. Certainly. I agree. Were these people in Jerusalem uh, 
present at the first uh, episode of the Holy Spirit? Is that is that your take when he says, just as he did? I mean, I kind of get the idea that they would have known that. He says the Holy Spirit fell on them, just like it did us. I don't know if he meant us or us to them. I assume he meant us okay. and not us. <laughs> Uh, because it's doubtful to me that all these people that called him on the carpet were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Now, most of them may have heard him speak in tongues. Yeah, but didn't the whole city come together when they heard the yes. sound? Yes, but the question is, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Well, I mean... Depending well, on your perspective. Whether it fell on them or not, they might have been, what I was thinking is they would have been witnesses to it. They may well have been that. They would have yeah. been those that had heard it. And come. Yes, they may well have been that. Because a lot of people did come and they saw that. Yes. That would have perhaps been um, more graphic for them when Peter says, well, it's the same thing. Yeah. They saw the evidence of it. The yeah, the other thing about Peter's retelling of the story is different than, than what we, a lot of times today is that it was the same. <laughs> he didn't just uh, spice it up. He didn't get the sheet didn't get any bigger. <laughs> you know, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't have to walk through the snow uphill or anything to get there. <laughs> yeah, he gave an accurate presentation. Yeah, just the facts. No flashes of light or anything. No. Yeah. What's this carpet we've been talking about? <laughs> Haven't you ever heard the phrase? Called on the carpet? Oh, he's just using a phrase. Oh. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah, he's oh. called on the carpet. Is yeah, that, uh, that an unusual uh, phrase? I don't no, know. I've never heard that before. Uh, oh. 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 To call somebody on the carpet is like to more or less... Um, Bring them in and question them about their conduct. Is that a good way to do that? to would be your your boss would have the carpeted office. Okay. You work out uh, in the in the mud and ditch, but she's calling you in to the carpet. Yeah. Okay. You got called on the carpet to answer to the boss. Okay. okay. I didn't think I never thought about that. Okay. But that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Do you younger generation do you have you heard of that? Okay. You've been around me very much. I use that, I yeah, guess. I don't know. That's always funny because I, you know, more and more younger people expressions that I think are common. They don't know. Uh, some of theirs are. I'm I'm in the transition on that one. I'm still okay with theirs most of the time, but uh, every once in a while, I have to be educated still. All right, other comments or questions? It's cool, man. It's cool. I I like to know from the younger generation what cool is. Well, it was cool back in my day, so I'm still I'm still cool with cool. I don't know if cool ever changes. Yeah, I mean, these days it's not neat or neato or some of those things, but but cool's timeless in my 52 years. But I suppose there was a generation before cool. So. Yeah. I think so. Was it, was it not cool in your generation? Really? It was in mine. It wasn't, it wasn't a, gross. Yeah. I'm not your generation. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, you're close enough. You'll do it a bitch. She says, don't put me with you yet. <laughs> you're a lot closer to my generation than to Ryan's. It's weird, though. I got, like, 10 and 12-year-olds in the church that call me sir. So I must be, like, getting older. You know, it's, it's weird. I don't know. I know. I don't know when this started. I just... I, I, that, that's uncomfortable for me, too. I, so I don't I, tell so them not to, because I think it's a sign of respect. You know, to older people. So I don't tell them no. I just say, okay. I just tell them you can call me anything you want to. Just don't think of me as a sir. That's what I think. Just don't think of me as a sir? Mm-hmm. You don't think of you as, a man, as like a man or something? No, as a person. As a friend. <laughs> sir just is a respectful. Don't over-respect me is what I say. And we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. You do well with that. I'm going to the dentist school. And uh, the man said, now do I call you Nancy or Mrs. Furman? And I said, I'll answer to either one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, other comments or questions through 18? Well, that leads to the next section in the sense that the door is now open. Peter had the keys of the kingdom, and it looks to me like he opened the uh, other side of the door here now for the Gentiles to receive the gospel, and we're going to see the effect of that in this section, 19 to 26. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So we have a focus on the city of Antioch that... uh, needs to be recognized uh, because Antioch becomes a key hub of uh, particularly Paul's activity. It'll become kind of his base of operations, sort of like Jerusalem was for the Twelve. Antioch was the Roman provincial capital of Syria with about a half a million people, the third largest city in the empire from what I have read. So it was a really significant city. There were other Antiochs, all going back to Antiochus, the kind of throne name of the Seleucid kings. But this was the most prominent. Um, So people who were scattered because of Stephen's persecution, the persecution that arose because of that, go here, there, and yonder spreading the message. This is not, ironically, this spread is not due to some sort of organized mission activity. It's uh, non-apostles, actually, we know, that being persecuted take the gospel to these various places. Um, 
the devil in some ways accomplished more to spread the gospel than what Christians did as far as, you know, getting them to uh, spread out and, and uh, you know, get the uh, news abroad. And, but at first they were speaking only to Jews. Then some from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and started preaching, speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, they were the preachers, but the power was God's. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. You know, sometimes we focus mostly on the human instrument. The Bible never lets us forget, this is God's hand that's doing this. And uh, remarkably, the news... Uh, spreads to Jerusalem. Now, what do they do about this when they hear about the gospel having come to Antioch? They send somebody to encourage them. Isn't that interesting? Is this the first time the Jerusalem church has sent folks to encourage new Christians? What else did they do that? Uh, was it Peter and John? Yes, who went to Samaria. Samaria. Jerusalem Church kind of has a habit of doing that. They send others to help in new places, new efforts to reach people with the gospel. That's a really great attitude on the part of the brethren in Jerusalem. You know, some churches seem to have this attitude that their only focus is to build up their congregation. And sometimes they're even reluctant to part with a good preacher, teacher, or encourager, because after all, we want him to be here and help us. But the Jerusalem church seems to really care about the spread of the gospel in other places and willing even to sacrifice a good man like Barnabas to go up and help the brethren uh, in, in Antioch. So I think that's a really good attitude on their part. I'll pause here. I know we're covering some territory. Do you have some questions or comments through 22? So it'd be okay for us to send some people from our congregation to some other places? <laughs> Absolutely. You think I get rid of some? Or? <laughs> how you look at that. <laughs> Do you have something you're particularly wanting to say? <laughs> I think it's interesting the way that's mentioned, though. It's almost like, hey, let's find, let's, you know, we need to send somebody up there. All right, Barnabas, you're it. You're going. You know, when they picked him and sent him, you know, almost the way it's worded, it's different than we would see that today. Today, it would be totally reversed. It'd be the person asking the group to, to help them go rather than the group looking and say, look, there's a need there. Is there anybody here we can send? Well, hopefully there are some groups doing it this way. I think this is a very good way for Christians to do this. And some groups do. Some groups will see a need and they'll send somebody. I think that's very appropriate. Some of it depends on a church caring about the spread of the gospel in other places. I mean, the Jerusalem church wants to see Antioch do well. They don't send some knucklehead. They send a man like Barnabas. I think it's important, too, to see that they don't send him there to oversee the, the, the work there. 
He's, he's sent to encourage them. Exactly. He's, he's not sent to, to be the director. He's sent to help. And they're not under the, the Jerusalem church either. Very good. That's exactly right. You don't have this uh, authoritarian hierarchy among the first century Christians. You know, uh, there's just there's no mother church and daughter churches or anything like that. Shane? I think a lot of times, I think a lot of times are, the congregations are fo- so focused on their own members and so focused on, on, on themselves. They, I think we kind of, and I say they, we, we kind of forget about the surrounding areas, things we can do to, to help in, in those areas instead of focusing on, well, does the, the Bible need to be repaired? The pews need to be redone? Or the panels need to be finished or whatever? These people more focused on the outside, how they can do the spiritual help instead of the inside on their own members. I mean, mm-hmm. both are important. I'm not saying that the other is important, but I think a lot of times, you know, I haven't, I haven't been in any men's meetings where we talk about helping other congregations or being there for anyone else. It's mostly just what we can do in, inside our own wall. Yeah, sometimes we're very self-focused in terms of just, you know, wanting our church to do well. I mean, even sometimes you might have a competitive concept. You have to appreciate Barnabas. You know, he arrives, he witnesses the grace of God, and he's kind of bummed out because they're really doing well, and he hoped that they, the church in Jerusalem would stand out as being really good. At comp- no, he rejoices. You know, he's able to see God's activity and he rejoiced when, when the work that these brethren have been doing is prospering. He's, he's thrilled. He cares about the spread of the gospel. He cares about the Lord. It's not a negative thing to him. It's not discouraging. It's wonderful. May God help more brethren in more places prosper and do well. And so he encourages them. Now that's true to his name, isn't it? You know, he's really Joseph, but he's called Barnabas because he's always encouraging. He encourages them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. You know, stay, stay faithful. Uh, it's also interesting. You remember where Barnabas himself was from? Cyprus. Yeah. And 19 and 20, there were people there from Cyprus yeah. who were there in Antioch helping spread the gospel. So maybe Barnabas even had a connection with some of those people who were there spreading the gospel. That would have been interesting. And the text says that he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You know, that's the kind of man you want to send. You know, if you're going to produce good people, you need to be good people. And, uh, you know, think about what they don't say. For he was a skilled businessman, full of the latest technology, and, you know, uh, organizational ability, or whatever. You know, sometimes people are promoted today because of certain skills or education or something like that. And we kind of overlook the character flaws because that man, he's a good organizer, he's a good speaker, he's a good this, he's good. You know, I don't know, I don't know what Barnabas was like as far as his, you know, business acumen. But I know he's a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's what matters. That's what's reported on. Uh, Those other things don't really make a lot of difference. And uh, 
considerable numbers are brought to the Lord. There's an emphasis on that. 21, a large number, turned to the Lord. 24, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. In 26, they taught considerable numbers. This is a growing church. A lot of brethren, a lot of people being taught here. Enough so that he needed some help. So who did he go fetch? Saul, who's still back in Cilicia, in Tarsus, his hometown where we left him back in uh, 930 or so. And he found him, brought him to Antioch. And uh, they meet with the church and uh, says that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I think there's a point to that that maybe we haven't thought about. I suspect the biggest point of their first being called Christians in Antioch is that people are starting to recognize the, the disciples as being their own group and not just an offshoot of Judaism. You know, they're not just being called Jews. After all, they're not just Jews, they're <laughs> Gentiles. You know, they've got, people call them by, by a distinctive name, by, by the name Christian, which identifies them with Christ and not with uh, Abraham or something like that. That's not contrary to our usage, the most common designation of uh, uh, followers of Christ in the Bible. What are the more common terms? Disciples. Disciples, Saints. Saints, Brethren. Believers. believers. Those are probably the four most common. We would tend to use Christian and and neglect those others. But but that's that's probably the most common. Alright, thoughts and comments through 26. And there were there were believers before they were called Christians, so it's yes. not like it's the only... It wasn't the first name, yeah. No. Was this what the enemies called them? Their enemies, or...? Well, I, apparently it's what people called them. It, it is true that the term is used in the three passages where it's used sort of by others calling them something. You know, they were called Christians first here. Or Agrippa said, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Or in in 1 Peter 4.16, if any man suffer as a Christian. So it may be that it was more others' designation for them. I don't know about the enemies necessarily. Uh, I'm not sure how many enemies there were to the brethren here in Antioch. But it may be that it was more the term other people used than what they used for themselves. It seemed to me that in Brazil, the Christians there used the phrase, the, the word brothers, more than Christians. I think you're right. <coughs> was that not used in other groups then? Like here, Baptists call each other brothers. I think it would be there too. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, Christians here sometimes we talk oh, about yeah. brethren a lot. Oh, yeah. But yeah, you're you're probably right. How is what is the Greek? I mean, designation of a Christ, you know, Christian. Same idea, belonging to Christ. Is that? You know, that man or how that would have been? I mean, they're just recognizing... Instead of an not, ending, you add to another word, you know, we do that, we have lots of words. That yeah, okay. yeah. But I don't know what's good exactly. We, we don't, do we do the IAN on some words? 
what Polynesia where they're from. Yeah, any yeah. Asian and yeah, you know, Ephesians and yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think the same idea. Somebody belonging to Christ. Somebody that's originating from Christ. I think it's kind of interesting. They were they were preaching the the Lord Jesus, and then he turned to the Lord. And uh, Barnabas comes and urges them to remain true to the Lord. Considerable numbers are brought to the Lord. And then they're first called Christians there. Yeah. Well, the point you made in the lesson is point I make, you know, often uh, others do as well. I mean, the emphasis here is on the Lord. The result of preaching the Lord, turning to the Lord, remaining true to the Lord, and being brought to the Lord, is the church. But that's the product. It, they didn't preach the church and turn to the church and remain true to the church and being brought to the church. Uh, the church is those who follow the Lord. And that, I mean, man, there's a lot of lear- lessons for brethren in that. Because sometimes we're way too concerned about making sure that people learn about the church and come to the church and stick with the church. The church is the byproduct of turning to the Lord. We've always got to get that right. And if we don't, we'll make some real real problems. For example, do you want to teach people to remain faithful to the church? Could that be a problem? Shows more dependency on the church than on the Lord. Well, yeah, and what happens if the church strays away from the Lord? There was a church I was in uh, some time ago, was part of. One guy told me, he said, I've been a part of this church for 40 years, I'll never leave this church. <laughs> well, would you say that? What if that church leaves the Lord? You're going <clears> to <throat> go right straight with them away from God? You probably you're... meant that. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I mean, that's, that's true. We, he was a good man, but you're probably right. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. that, that kind of a statement I know. a lot of times is made by folks who remain true to that. I, I know, it really disappointed me in that guy. You know, but I, I, wow. I mean, I think if, if we had that concept, we're really not following the right thing. You know, our loyalty needs to be the Lord. Uh, I, I mean, I may have to leave the church I'm a part of. God may want me to. It's the Lord I stay faithful to. It's the Lord I was converted to. And uh, I think having that focus is the only right thing. Otherwise, we've got things way out of balance and we're, we're really promoting the wrong thing. You know, sometimes I think when I hear, you know, I mean, it's a common phrase saying, oh, I'm going to church, you know. Um, I think sometimes when people say they're going, I mean, I've heard some Christians, and they, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm going to church, or I got to church, you know, or something. And it's like, they almost really look at that phrase as, you know, you're going to church instead of going to worship God, you know, where I, you know, I met some Christians, I call them pew Christians, where they just think, you know, because they go and sit in their pews and they do whatever. It's like, you don't go into the building and there's like a clock in and clock out, like I go into the factory job, you know, it's not like a, it's like, it, you know, Christians have a 24-7 job, you know what I mean? It's not like you're just going in there and, you know, like basically, you know, I hear people say checking off your thing or whatever, like, oh, I went to church, you know, for the day or whatever. I mean, it's like, as so we're going to worship our creator, you know, when we're going to that building. You sure. know, it's like we're going to worship God. We're not just going to the church. You know? Sure. Well, we need to have a uh, 
spiritual concept about what we're doing and never have a checklist mentality. The idea of church is sometimes in the Bible the idea of an assembly. So we're going to the assembly. That's not necessarily a bad phrase, but the concept may be bad if we're not using it correctly. Exactly, yeah, that's what I meant. Well, we talk about going to school. For right. example, we use that in the same way. Right. We we can we can end up using that going yeah. to church wrong. I don't have a problem with the phrase "I'm going to church." I mean, you know, right. I mean, uh, but it's just sometimes I just want to make sure people understand what we're saying. You know, yeah. Yeah. And even you know, it might be worth just uh, you know, depends on who you've heard uh, teach or, or what you've discussed. But you know, what would you say? To somebody who says what we really need to do is you just find the right church and become a part of it. So our goal is not to turn to the Lord. Our goal is to find the right church. And then somebody said, well, what what would qualify as the right church? And the way I've heard it taught before is something like, well, the right church is the church that was started on the day of Pentecost in AD 33 in Jerusalem, and you need to find that church and become a part of that. And furthermore, that church has elders and deacons, and it protects the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and so forth and so on. Well, do you know any church like that? I don't think that exists, does it? You know, that confuses the universal and the local church. But word church is used in two main senses, really a third also, but two main senses in the Bible. The church is just the body of Christ, the people of God. And then the church is a congregation of, of, of disciples. Well, could I find the church that was started on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem? I don't think that's a fine... Would that be the... Would that be the universal church or the local church? Would that have to be the universal church? That's not a findable entity. It's just people's relationship with God. You know... Now, is it appropriate to find a faithful local church to be a part of? Yeah, that would be a fair thing to look for. But do you look for a local church that was started in Jerusalem in AD 33? Well, if you think it was... You've missed it. You've got a church made up of churches, which is a denominational concept. Church I'm a part of was started, I think, in 1979 or 80 in Crandall, Indiana. <laughs> you know? And you say, well, but it was a, it's a part of that church that was started then. No, it's not a part of anything. Not, not biblically. It's just a group of Christians that are working and worshiping together. So we've really got to purify our minds and our concepts about those things. Thoughts and comments. I, I, I've known of people who were a part of a local church and then they'd move away, be gone 20 years, and they'd come back and they're disappointed because things it wasn't the same. <laughs> I mean, and and the, the fact is, the the church is not the same because they're all different people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. So, and to and to expect. Church, local churches are constantly changing. Well, and I've heard people preach on the unchanging church. Well, that's kind of a, a that's at least not phrased well. <laughs> we might say that there is a, there is an unchanging Lord. There's an unchanging word. There's an unchanging pattern for what God wants His people to be. 
But all churches I know of change. You know, they may change for the better, they may change for the worst. So, so we might say there's an unchanging blueprint for God's people and how they need to behave and, you know, serve and so forth. That's fine. But the church itself changes because people change. That's all the church is. If you, if you use the word church and you can't stick people in there in the place of church, you misuse the word. Well, not only are people coming and going, but then you got people who, you know, can become deacons or elders or, you know, take different, you know, positions. Are growing or, or not, or, or declining. Or, yeah, yeah. So, or you got to grow so big. I mean, I know I've heard of some churches that get so big in number, you know, they just have a, I don't want to say a split. I mean, I've heard it called a growth where they just, you know, they'll move to another part of the town or just to the town over and try to start some, you know, work there. So, you know, it's like... Church has always changed. You know what I mean? I do. Um, I have a weird question. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I've always wondered. Do you know why? The, in, in the title Christ, there's a long I, but in Christian, there's not. Do you know how that? Why that changed? Probably an English grammar thing. I have no idea. Sometimes I just wonder if it's supposed to be called Christian. I mean, it don't really matter. <laughs> but like, I mean, I just, I'm just curious on that. I don't that know. That's just an English thing. Okay. You know, I think a lot of times we tend to put our own responsibilities that God has given us in the church. I think a lot of times we find somebody that, that we think might be a prospect in turn of the Lord. And we say, well, invite them to church so they can be taught. You teach them yourself. You don't need the church to help them be taught. I'm, I would much rather, for me, it's personal. I'd much rather have a study with them outside the church that would bring them to searches. Because there's going to be some things in searches they might not be ready to hear yet. But you might have to explain in deeper detail. I think a lot of times, and I even find myself doing this, it's like, I want to bring them to church so they can be taught. But why can't I just do the teaching myself? I've got the Bible. The church can be able to tell them anything that I'm not going to be able to tell them. I think a lot of times, we put our, the response we have of serving the Lord, we say, well, I'll, I'll do that at church. Or the church can help me do this. Or the church is, is supposed to preach. Well, no, we're given the commandment to preach. We're given the commandment to serve the Lord. And the reason we have the church is because of those responsibilities. I think a lot of times we put those responsibilities in the church instead of taking them on ourselves. Yeah, I would say two things. The church assembly's primary focus should not be evangelism. And most of my re- relationship and responsibilities before the Lord are individual. There are collective ones also, but most of them are individual. I was going to say that um, I guess it was a little bit... To, to tweak that state of mind, now, I know, you know, when I first became a Christian a couple years back, I didn't know enough to teach. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was good at it. I mean, God helped me to bring, I was able to bring people to services, but I didn't know enough about Scripture to teach them myself. So, I, I mean, in essence, on the flip side, I was glad that I was able to bring them to services to where at least they could hear a sermon, you know, or sit in Bible study, you know, because I didn't know enough to teach, but I knew where people needed to be. You know what I mean? So, I understand and I respect what you said, because I agree with that, you know, when, if you do know, but, you know, some people, like, when I was like, I did a couple years back, I was able to get people to go, but I could teach, you know, it was too, it was too dangerous for me to teach people, because, you know, I, that still is. <laughs> 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 but, you know, so. You know, maybe Barnabas felt the same way. He left for Tarsus and looked for Saul, and brought him to Antioch. Yeah. Well, he's needed help, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't know what all he imagined Saul would do. What did uh, what what did Barnabas witness? What what is the significance of the statement that he witnessed the grace of God? 
Well, I guess he witnessed a large number of believers turning to the Lord. Which was evidence of God's favor. Amen. But some people would only have witnessed believers turning to the Lord. When he saw that, he saw the grace of God. You know, like seeing the hand of the Lord and so forth. So what we see in what we look at tells a lot about what we're thinking. Would we have seen the hand of the Lord? Would we have seen the grace of God? Or would we have just seen, you know, some more scalps, you know, getting wet? It's kind of like that song, Have You Seen Jesus, My Lord? Yes. And lists different things that, you know, you look out on this earth and what do you see? Yes. That's a good point. Sometimes we don't see the Lord when we ought to. Other thoughts and comments? I think it's interesting that Barnabas was willing to choose a kind of a controversial figure to come and help him with the work there in Antioch. <laughs> it's true. It's kind of caused trouble in other places, hasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah good point. You know, Barnabas had had that relationship with him back in Jerusalem for a few days and evidently had confidence in him. Needed some help. It's all very exciting things here. And very, you know, you're kind of reliving these experiences as you go through this. I think we can learn so much, you know, from, from all of this. And really just a lot of points to be made, even in, in basic passages like this. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Thanks, Justin. to see you so much. So much Paul must have grown. Because Barnabas just didn't see help. He saw Saul's help. Yeah, he straight right. for Paul. He was the first person. He seems to, and he sees indicate he went straight for Paul. Um, and, and how much an influence that God had on his life. But just so short after Paul had converted. We don't know how to build out time, I don't think. But not long. And he was already being sought out to help. And, and it's, it's an encouraging situation. Other thoughts? Well, why don't we uh, pause here, and uh, I will not be here next week, which is Christmas Eve, or the following week, which is New Year's Eve, so that means our next time will be...